Yes, so um, let's let's get into this week's uh, Parsha class. This week's Torah portion is actually a double header. Uh, we are going to read the Torah portion of Bihar and the Torah portion of Bechukotai. And uh, in general, the Shabbat is a pretty full Shabbat. Number one, it's called Shabbat Chazak. Chazak means strong. And the reason why it's called the Shabbat of strength is because we are finishing one of the five books of Moses. Whenever we finish a complete book, it is called Shabbat Chazak. And after we read the last verse, we say Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek. And uh, this week, Bechukotai is the last to- is the last Torah portion of the book of Leviticus, Chumash Vayikra, number one. Number two, this is the Shabbat before Rosh Chodesh in exactly one week on Wednesday, next coming Wednesday, is going to be Rosh Chodesh Sivan. It's going to begin the new month of Sivan, which is a very special month because it is the month in which we receive the Ten Commandments and the Torah. Now, besides that, um, I'm going to dedicate this class to a specific part of the second Torah portion called Bechukotai, which is called the Tochacha rebuke. So first, let's go quickly through the general, you know, in brief, the general topics of the Torah portion. And then we're going to get specifically into that long and quite harsh and difficult reading. Okay, so the Torah portion, Bahar, the word Bahar means at the mountain. And because it's called Bahar, because the Torah verse begins with Vayadaber Hashem Moshe, and God spoke to Moses, Bahar Sinai at Mount Sinai, Lamor saying. Now, immediately on this verse, Rashi, um, he leans on the famous Torah Koanim, the Midrash on the book of Leviticus, and um, it's accredited to Rabbi Akiva. And over there, he it quotes and Rashi take leans on that to say, why does this verse say that God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai? So number one, the seeming question would be that Rashi's asking is, everything came from Mount Sinai. Um, that's where the Torah came from. Uh, but that's not really at the heart of what Rashi's asking. Rashi is asking a far greater question than that. Rashi is saying that at this point, at the end of Leviticus, God was talking to Moses, not from Mount Sinai, but specifically from the Mishkan, the Ohel Moed. Coming, the voice was coming forth from the Holy of Holies between the two cherubim on the Holy Ark. So not only is this a question of why does it mention that God is speaking to Moses from Mount Sinai, which would lead to that the whole Torah was given from Mount Sinai, but actually the question gets deeper in saying that this is incorrect because Rashi already told us that once God commanded Moses to build the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and Moses built the tabernacle, at that point, everything that God was speaking to Moses was coming through the Ohel Moed, was coming through the Mishkan. So therefore, why is the verse saying that this is coming to Moses from Mount Sinai? And therefore, 
in the greater picture, the, what he's really telling us is that when God gave the commandments to Moses the first time around, even though he would later repeat himself and then again in the fifth book, which is called Deuteronomy, where he recaps many mitzvot. Not only does he recap many mitzvot, but in the book of Deuteronomy, he also gives us details to mitzvot that we didn't know before. So you may think that God told these, these different details of the different commandments at different times because the book of Deuteronomy was actually Moses said it to the Jewish people in the 40th year, in the last year um, before he passed away, the 40th year of the desert. So you would say, well, obviously Moses didn't hold back um, giving something that God told the Jewish people 40 years earlier, it would not be that God would, that Moses would then not tell it to them until 40 years later before he dies when they're waiting to get into Israel, even if those commandments were only concerning the law of Israel when they would get into the law of Israel. But as we see over and over again, as Moses is getting the commandments from God at the first and earliest opportunity, he's obviously immediately giving it over to to them so they can study it and learn it and then wrap their head around it, ask questions on it, even though they will not be able to actually do this mitzvah until they get into Israel. For example, the opening mitzvot, the primary mitzvot of the entire first Torah portion that we're going to read is all about the sabbatical year and the jubilee year. Now, the sabbatical year and the jubilee year is all about the laws of the produce and the land and the real estate only in the land of Israel. So therefore, one might say, oh, so Moses probably didn't say this until later on. The answer is no, because when you look into the book of Deuteronomy, it does not at all mention the laws of the sabbatical years. So therefore, we know that Moses told it to them Later, when he, when there was the, when they, after they built the Mishkan and after Moses started teaching them the Torah, because let's go over the chronological order. What happened was that they all received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Then Moses goes up for 40 days. Meanwhile, they make the golden calf. Moses comes down and breaks the tablets, grinds up the golden calf, goes back up for 40 days to beg God not to annihilate the Jewish people for the 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 sin that they did, not even 40 days after they heard God's voice that they committed idolatry. And therefore, he had no time to teach them. And then he comes back down and immediately God tells him, come back up for a third 40 days because God is telling him, I'm going to give you the second tablets. He goes up, he comes back down 40 days later. Now we're at the day of Yom Kippur. And immediately Moses starts giving them the commandment of building the tabernacle. And then when Moses has the tabernacle built, again, God is talking to him through the tabernacle. And obviously, he's immediately the entire time teaching the Jewish people all the Torah. So then later, when he repeats everything in, in Deuteronomy, there's nothing there that wasn't already given with all its details to Moses the first time around 40 years prior. And therefore, the reason the Torah is telling us that God said, this to Moses at Mount Sinai is because in this Torah portion, we're having the details and the details of details of this commandment. 
So the Torah is using us the opportunity to tell us that you should know that every commandment that Moses received from God was given with all the details. Now, why am I spending so much time talking about this? I want to share with you why. Because there is a mistake that people make by saying that the written law God gave to Moses, the oral law is the human interpretation to what God told Moses. So I want to just clarify that that is not true. When God gave Moses the commandment, he gave him the details and he gave him the 13 rules of extrapolation from the written law. For example, you will not find anywhere in the Torah, just, just going to throw out two mitzvot that we all know about. So the Torah tells us four times that every male over the age of 13, a man is supposed to put on tefillin. You will not find anywhere in the five books of Moses or in the book of prophets, it describing to us what the shape of the tefillin is, what it's made out of, what's written in it, the different laws of the, of the portions, the different laws of the straps, where do you, but you don't have any of this in the Torah. It's actually all found in the oral law. And so too, for example, with the laws of Shechitah, we know that if an animal is not slaughtered correctly, according to Jewish law, it is a biblical prohibition to eat from that animal. And the verse says, Vishochat, and you shall slaughter. But there is nowhere in the Torah where you will find any definition of what the laws, there are four major laws, five major laws concerning the Shechitah. The slaughtering. You will not find any of them said directly in, in the five books of Moses. Um, so too with tzitzit. It talks about having the, the garment, the four corners of the garment with a blue wool and a white wool. It doesn't explain anywhere exactly how the tzitzit are to be made. And the tzitzit, the tefillin, these are all found in the Talmud. The laws of the Shechita, it's all found in the Talmud, but these are all biblical laws. So I want to just use this opportunity to give a clarification of biblical, rabbinical. The details that are all taught in the, in the Talmud, coming from the extrapolation of the 13 rules of, that Moses brought us from Mount Sinai, are all biblical. When Moses taught us, he taught it to us with the details. However, God at that time had commandment, commanded that the written Torah be written and the oral Torah be given over orally. So most of what you see in the Talmud is actually not rabbinical, it's actually biblical, and it goes all the way back to Moses. Sometimes we have the 13 rules of extrapolation, and sometimes we have literally handed down from generation to generation, and the, Tal the Talmud will ask, and where do we know this from? And it will answer, We receive this law directly from Moses orally from Mount Sinai. And just that you should know that when the Rambam uses the word Kabbalah, he does not mean what we mean, which means that it was received mystical, but rather he means it in the most literal sense of the word. 
Talmud means to study, to learn, to extrapolate. Kabbalah means to receive. So whenever we talk about a law that we don't have the extrapolation from the 13 rules, from the words of the Torah, but rather this was literally handed down from Moses to Joshua, to the elders, to the prophets, to the all of everything until it reached us in the Talmud. Because that is not done through the process of extrapolation, but rather it is literally a tradition that we received from teachers and student, from teacher, from teacher, from teacher, all the way back to Moses. Maimonides refers to this as Kabbalah. It is something we received and that's the way it is. So what is rabbinical then? If this is all biblical and it all came from Moses who received it at Mount Sinai, then what does it mean that there are rabbinical ordinances? For example, not to mix milk and meat is biblical. What's about milk and fowl? What's about to have a cheese chicken sandwich? So there, besides one opinion, which we don't follow, all the other opinions say, and it's brought down in the code of Jewish law, that this is rabbinical. There is no biblical prohibition of having milk and chicken cooked together. However, rabbinical's job, now for you to understand what does it mean that there's rabbinical ordinances, the rabbinical ordinances are all based on creating buffer zones. In other words, their job was to take the perfect Torah and make it doable for the imperfect human being. And they did this by creating buffer zones. The Torah says, don't cross this line. We're going to back you up a couple of miles so that you won't pass that line. So for sure, you'll never pass the biblical line. For example, what's the reason if the Torah says not to eat meat and milk or cheese, whatever it may be, to cook it together, then why would the rabbis say not to eat fowl, bird, chicken? with milk and cheese, but they didn't say that about fish. So what's going on here? And the answer is because in the way of the human mind, we categorize fish separately, poultry, poultry and meat as one. Hence, they knew that if you're going to see that you can eat poultry with milk and meat, milk and cheese, you're going to extrapolate that, oh, if you can do it to chicken, you can do it to meat. They're both the same category. That's one example. And I can give you numerous examples like this, but to understand what the rabbinical ordinances are, it's not their translation of the Torah. No, it's them creating buffer zones for us so that we would never end up crossing the line of the Torah. And that's primarily what the rabbinical ordinances are. However, when it comes to the interpretations of the verse, they had to follow the direct, the direct hand-me-down of the 13 rules of extrapolation, which is given to Moses by God, handed down to us, and hence all of that is biblical. Okay, so I spent quite a, quite a couple of minutes explaining this. However, I want to jump to what the laws are. So the laws that we talk about here are of the 
sabbatical year. And then after seven sabbatical years, which means 49 years, we then go into a jubilee year, Yovel. So I want to just tell you a brief, what does this talk about? What this talks about is number one, it applies to the laws of the land of agriculture. We are not allowed to work the land on the sabbatical year, nor on the jubilee year. So you must let your land actually rest. Now, the laws apply in Israel, and from a rabbinical point of view, they apply till this very day. Biblically speaking, they have to be, there has to be the majority of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, Rov Minyan, Rov Binyan, but we don't have that today. But the laws of sabbatical years, we keep them from a rabbinical ordinance. Okay? Now, that means that till this very day, every seven years, there is huge issues of laws going on in Israel. So I want to just share with you the only place in the world where you have a kosher certification for fruits and vegetables, produce is in Israel. And that is for two primary reasons. Number one, if there wasn't the tithing giving, then you're not allowed to have the fruits and vegetables. And number two, what we're talking about now, which is the laws of the sabbatical year. You need to make sure that nothing that we're eating was worked on on produce of the seventh year. Another category is concerning slavery. No matter how much a person sold himself into slavery or he was sold by the Jewish court because of theft and he was not able to pay back the theft, the law is that literally he's treated like a worker and not like a slave and he goes free on the, se on the seventh year. So the sabbatical year also applies to slavery. Another thing that the seventh year applies to is loans. According to the Torah, all loans are automatically canceled when it comes to the sabbatical year. And the Torah tells you not to worry that your loan <clears throat> that you gave this person is going to be canceled and you'll never get the money back. God says he promises to repay the debt. Now, what happened was that people... You know, when it comes to money, uh, faith gets very challenging. And therefore, what they started doing was they stopped giving loans in the fifth year, the sixth year, because they didn't want to lose the money that they're going to give as a loan uh, when it comes to the sabbatical year. And that is a sin. The whole purpose of the Torah canceling loans is to let the poor person get back up on their feet. And here, not only are they not going to be getting up on their feet already in the fifth year and the sixth year, it's going to be impossible for them to be able to get a loan. And therefore, the great sage Hillel created an entire format on how to create, how to fulfill what he calls a principle, and you won't be transgress transgressing any biblical ordinances and commandments, and yet you'll be able to get your money back. But now you know that so far we spoke about three things. We spoke about the laws, the sabbatical year, there's laws concerning agriculture, there's laws concerning slaves, and there's laws concerning um, loans. Now let's talk about the jubilee year. 
the Jubilee year has another aspect to it. Now, it's very detailed. It depends what type of land we're talking about. Are we talking about a house? Are we talking about a field? Are we talking about a walled city? Are we talking about an open city? There's all these laws that I invite you to read the Torah portion. However, I want to just give you the gist, the soul of the commandment. The law is telling that the Torah is telling us that property, the land of Israel, does not belong to us as an ownership but rather as in a lease. In other words, there is a whole Talmudic and, and really it's in a whole beautiful exploration. Does anything belong to us or does everything belong to God? And we were only given the right of usage, of benefiting. So therefore, if the land is not ours, but we were given it only for the benefit of usage, of profiting from it, of benefiting. So therefore, it's not ours to sell. Hence, the Torah tells us that when we sell land, again, there's exceptions. You have to read the Torah portion about all of this. But in general, the paradigm is that it's not ours to sell. So therefore, we only end up leasing it up to the Jubilee year to another person where it is returned to us. A lot of this has to do also with the concept that Israel was divided amongst the tribes. So every area had its own tribe. So they wanted to keep it that way. So therefore, there's that there's that insight into why the Torah commands us this. But I think it's a very powerful insight to realize that the world always belongs to God. And anything that was given to us was given to us not for our ownership, that we have the right to do with it whatever we want. For example, we are not allowed to destroy things, even if it belongs to us. It's called Baal Tashchit. It's actually a sin. But why? If it's mine, I can do what I want with it. And the answer is that ultimately everything is God. And that's why there's laws about our body. No tattoos, no damaging it. It's not ours. It's a lease. So too with all the properties that we have. And there are times that even though it's ours, quote unquote, God tells us, I'm not even letting you, I'm not even allowing you to have benefit of usage out of it. For example, on chametz, on Pesach, if someone is to take a loaf of bread on Pesach that belongs to him and it's worth whatever it's worth, and he goes over to a woman and says, with this, I am bethrowing you as my wife. The law is that even if that bread, that loaf of bread was a thousand dollar loaf of bread, the woman by receiving it does not become that person's wife. Why? Why is that when you put a ring on her finger, which has monetary value, it does become and this not? The answer is because even though the bread, quote unquote, is yours on Pesach, if you did not sell it or get rid of it. However, God's saying, I'm not allowing you to even have benefit out of it. And therefore, it has no monetary value to your benefit. So you see that what God really gave us at all is the benefit. And at times, under certain conditions, he even doesn't allow us to have that. But to think that we own anything, 
to the point that we can do with it whatever we want, however we want, does not exist. I will conclude this concept by sharing with you that there is an ancient custom that whenever you have a book and you want to put your name on the book, so if someone finds it, she give it back to you, if someone uses it, she give it back to you, there is an ancient custom that before you write your name on it, you write, La Hashem Ha'aretz Umlo'o. The, to God, is the entire world and God fills it. Everything that exists in this world belongs to God. And literally, I have a stamp. Today I write, but when I was a kid, it was like a big thing. I had my bar mitzvah. I finally had my own books. So I bought myself a beautiful stamp in Hebrew. You put it into the ink. You stamp it on the front page, and you hereby declare it as your book. And that stamp said, To God is the entire world and everything that exists in it. And then after that, it said, From my book, Avram Akohen Lipschitz. So that is a very practical paradigm that we keep until this very day, being clear that what we have is not ours, it is God's. It is ours to use, and obviously to use in the correct fashion. Now, the next Torah portion, the Chukotai, I'm going to share with you that what makes this Torah portion so difficult is that it's one of the two times that God gives us really harsh rebuke. Now, after that, there's other laws, but that's the bulk of it. And it's so harsh that even though we must hear every single word that's read from the Torah on Shabbat, we have to actually hear the words being read. Nevertheless, this is one of the two times that the law tells us that the reader should lower his voice. Do not read this loud. Because the rebuke that God is giving to us, it's twice. It's once this week because we're getting close to the holiday of Shavuot in which God gave us the Torah. And therefore, God is entering with us into a covenant which says both the good and the not so good if we listen or if we don't listen to what we're accepting upon ourselves. The second time is um, not very shortly before high holidays, once again, we read the same thing for an obvious reason. We're getting into the high holidays. Now, I want to share with you, the, first let me give you the, 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 practical, the practical format. So we talk about seven different sins. We don't study Torah, we don't uh, listen to the mitzvot of the Torah, so forth and so on. And therefore, it says, and if you will not do this or you'll do this, then I will bring upon you. And it gives us seven really harsh punishments. And then it says, and if you will still not do this, I will bring upon you another seven. So we have seven times seven. And that's a lot. 49 extremely difficult, harsh punishments. So in the beginning, God says, and if you will walk in my path and you will study the Torah, you'll study it diligently and you'll respect the Torah and realize that the primary occupation of us in this world is to study the Torah, to know God and to know the ways of God, and then to actually do the ways and fulfill the ways. Um, then everything will be blessing upon blessings. However, if not, and it gets pretty rough. And I wanted to share with you a story that the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabdov Ber, he was quite physically fragile. 
And when he was a child, before his bar mitzvah, he was in his father's shul. That was the shul, you know, the center shul of Lubavitch. We're talking about seven generations ago. And the Alter Rebbe in his shul, Rav Shneer Zaman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad Lubavitch, he was the one that would actually be the Torah reader in his shul. That didn't go on. The Rebbe's, our Rebbe did not read the Torah. The previous Rebbe did not read the Torah. There was a Torah reader. And, and, you know, if the Rebbe got called up, he would get called up to an aliyah. But there was a designated Torah reader like there is in every shul. The Alter Rebbe was the designated Torah reader of his shul. Now, one year on this, on this not this week, but the next one, the next time before high holidays, it's called Parshat Kitavo in the Book of Deuteronomy, where we have another set of the same style of rebuke. Um, the Alter Rebbe had to be away. The Alter Rebbe was consistently dealing with the czar and the government and everything to protect the Jews from all the laws that they would be making. He had to deal with the, the, the he had to deal with Jewish issues, and he couldn't be in at home for that Shabbat. And someone else read the Torah, and the Alter Rebbe's son, Rab Dov Ber, who was very young, like I said, fragile, got so sick that he was bedridden. And on top of that, the doctors expressed that he's not sure that he would be able to participate at all in the Holy Yom Kippur fast. That's how seriously sick he became, violently ill from what he heard read in the Torah. And they asked him, but why? This is not the first time you heard this Torah portion. It's read every year. And he says, no, I always hear my father reading it. And when my father reads it, there is no curses and there is no punishments. Hence, what we're hearing here is that this Torah portion, this rebuke, has layers. It exists in parallel realms of reality. Now, the way it manifests itself in this world of arrogance and evil and temptation and sin is in its lowest level, which literally means what it says. The punishments are taken literally. When it says that I will banish you from the land and you will be, you will be in, in, in complete um, terror, um, stricken fear, not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. There's going to be poverty. Your enemies are going to lead you into slavery. I mean, and we know, we know from the history of the Jewish people that this has happened over and over again. It happened when the Babylonian king destroyed the first temple and took us into exile. It happened when the Roman Empire destroyed the second temple, took us into exile. It happened with the Spanish Inquisition. It happened with the Holocaust. I mean, literally, look at what happened and look at this week's Torah portion. You're going to see that it's woof. It's, it's real in, in its most literal sense. However, there is also parallel realms of the universe in which it has different meanings. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that as we go into higher realms of, of existence, over there, for example, the realms of angels, and then even higher than that, and then we go into the realm of, 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 of unity and the realm of divinity, and even higher than the realm of divinity, it goes higher and higher, closer and closer to God, where there's greater transparency and greater unity and greater submission to only the will of God. In those realms, there exists no evil, 
and hence there exists no negativity, hence there exists no punishment, and there exists no suffering. So what is going on? It's interesting, right? What we know from people that uh, you know were legally dead and they were brought back, most of them talk about the same notion of absolute serenity. So in those realms, in the world of truth, there is no suffering, there is no evil, there is no punishment. So what does it mean when we have these verses, when we study the Torah on that realm, what does it mean? So therefore, I want to share with you that when we talk about this verses on the higher levels, that is what the Rabbi Dov Bear as a child was referring to when he said that when my father reads it, and because his father, the holy Alter Rebbe, the saintly Alter Rebbe, lived in a total different realm of absolute purity and transparency to God, Therefore, even when he read it, these harsh verses, his son heard no harshness. He heard only absolute blessings and deeper blessings than blessings. So unfortunately, I don't know all the mystical meanings of all these of all these verses, how they represent, not only don't they represent retribution and suffering, but they represent the highest levels of blessings. However, I will share with you one in this week's Torah portion that I do know, and then I give my suggestion to another one, and feel free to look into this week's email, and you'll see what I suggest about a different verse. But I want to share with you what I clearly learned about one of the verses. It says that we will be so poor that we will not be able to afford firewood for the oven to bake. Hence, five women will have to all bake at the same time so that they can all make usage of whatever little firewood they can all afford, put it in together, put their bread in together. So that's how poor the Jewish people would be if we don't go in the ways of God. Now, here is the most beautiful insight and the deepest blessing to this verse, which speaks seemingly of the worst retribution and suffering and poverty. And the meaning of this verse is as follows. We've studied, we've discussed it on this platform previous times. It's mentioned in Tanya, brought down from other holy books, that every single soul is made up of 10 faculties which is a reflection of the 10 emanations. When God told the angels, let us make mankind in our image and form, God has no image and form. Hence, what he's talking about is the 10 different emanations through which the, the infinite light sustains the finite world. Now, what these three break, what these 10 faculties of the soul break into is pretty much three intellects and seven emotions. There's the three intellects of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. There's the seven emotions, which talks about love, fear, compassion, and it lists all the seven of them. So when we talk about the 10 women, the verse says 10 women, doesn't say nine, doesn't say 11. It says 10 women will bake in one oven. And what it really means, according to the mystical levels in which everything is pure and good and, and wonderful, is that the 10 women represent the 10 faculties of the soul. 
Now, because our inner makings, intellect and emotion, emotions are diametrically opposed to each other, um, within the intellect itself, there's the intellect of wisdom, which has one way of grasping, and then there's the intellect of understanding, which has a total different format of methodological dissection, extrapolation. So even within the intellects, there isn't a piece. So too in the emotions, love and fear, to opposite extremes. So therefore, we can be struggling with the lack of inner peace being torn in different directions from the very faculties of our inner makings of our personality. And that is painful. Hence, what the verse is saying here is that no, the deepest blessing is that we will experience such an inner peace, such an inner congruency, such an inner unity of our personality, where all 10 women, i.e. faculties of our soul, will all be baking in the same oven using the same fire. Now, what does fire represent in the realm of Kapala? It represents passionate love. In other words, even though we have intellect and emotions, which are diametrically opposed in the way they approach things, perceive things, and experience things, and even though within the intellect we have diametrically opposed intellects, and even within the emotions we have diametrically opposed emotions one to another, nevertheless, because our life will be about the passionate love for God, hence we will find inner peace and inner congruency even within all the particular different faculties within our soul. So what God is actually telling us is that he will actually bring us back to an inner peace, to teshuva, in which we will experience not only no shame, guilt, and not only no self-loathing, and not only we will be feeling like we're wearing so many different hats. At the office, we have to be secular. With our friends, we have to be social. In the synagogue, we have to be holy. No, all of us will be baking in one oven, experiencing the true produce of our soul. Okay, now you understand that if you can see how this was explained, then every verse you can read, even when it talks about cannibalism, which I explained in my email, and please go ahead and, and you know read it, but we will understand that the way we are hearing these harsh verses of rebuke, it's because we're living in the paradigm of temptation and evil and guilt and shame and, 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 and jealousy and, and all that hatred. Hence, we're reading the verses at their lowest expression of truth, retribution and suffering. However, know that in us, there's a godly soul. In us, there's a Jewish heartbeat. And over here, there is no understanding any verse of Torah as retribution and pain. Rather, it's all blessings upon blessings upon blessings. And as we can shed our arrogance, temptation, and, and all our own shortcomings in the way we perceive and behave, so too we'll be able to shed all these outer layers of the Torah and be able to connect with the Torah in its purest holy unity, only goodness level. Okay. And now I want to wrap it up with just an interesting practical lesson. And that is about 
we punish our children when they misbehave. And seemingly, well, the Torah this week is clearly telling us that God, our parent, is doing the same to us. You misbehave, you need to be punished. Now the question is, why? Why does there have to be punishment? And I remember as a child watching one of these shows, I don't even remember, one of these kids shows, where the child hears the parent saying, you're bad, you need to be punished. And the child says, oh, so bad people need to be punished. So if my parents are bad, I need to punish them. And that becomes the notion that it's just bad people need to be punished. But that's not true. Punishment should never have anything what to do with you're bad, I'm going to punish you. Rather, what is the true inner makings of any education? And I want to share with you a story. It's a personal story. This is being recorded. It's going to be sent out into World Wide Web. It's not going to be hidden no more. And yet, I'm going to be vulnerable and share it with you. So, my son, one of my sons, before his bar mitzvah, it was, I would say, probably 11, 12, around there. It was on a Shabbat. We were walking to shul for the afternoon services, and he wouldn't stop. He was acting out, and he wouldn't stop. I warned him once, warned him twice, warned him three times. Stop. I'm going to give you a patch. A patch means a slap. And he wouldn't stop. And I slapped him. That was the first and last time I've ever slapped any of my kids. We got to shul. And he said, what do you gain by hitting me? That was a question I had to not only answer him, but to myself. Most children don't realize that if the father has a drop of healthiness to him, then hitting a child hurts more the parent than the child. And I need to understand why I did that. So I walked into the shul, you know, being the rabbi there. I told the community, you have a menu without me. You know how to run this. You're on your own. I need to be outside talking to my son. And I sat down next to my son and I shared with him. <coughs> I said, you know, Hitting can never be from a perspective of anger of the parent because then the hitting is about the parent, not about the child. And what right do we have to hit our parent, as hit our child at all because of our own issues? I said, so really what it is, is it's a deterrent. You know, I asked you to stop. You wouldn't stop. You wouldn't stop. Now, next time I ask you to stop, you'll think twice. But truth be said, his question was better than my answer, which is the reason why that is the first and last time I have ever slapped any one of my six children. I punished them, but I've never slapped them again. Now, I was slapped a lot. <laughs> I was no angel, and in my days, there was no 1-800-HRS, um, you, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever it is, child abuse, and oh, I was slapped with belts, with, with rulers, with, don't ask. But I knew there was something wrong with that. And hence, let's understand what punishment is all about. And I think that today, 
today, you know, doing a lot of parenting classes, reading a lot of parenting books, working with a lot of professionals, you know, this notion of time out, alone time, calming down time, um, being able to ask my son when he's throwing a full tantrum, tantrum completely lost in his limbic system, asking him, do you need time to be alone? Um, do you want a hug? Something that's so counterintuitive to my generation, the way we were brought up. However, it works so much better than anything that was done to us. So I want to share with this notion of retribution, being punitive. This applies to children. This applies to siblings. This applies to spouses. This applies to friends. We get punitive. Sometimes we get punitive in aggressive ways, sometimes in passive aggressive ways, sometimes through silence, sometimes through abandonment, sometimes through withholding emotions, love, caring, expression. It's all the same. It's all retribution and it's all so unhealthy. So what is going on here in the Torah? And I, I want to be short about this, not because I would don't want to go on and on and on. I think this is something we need to go on and on and on. But when we go on and on and on, it becomes useless. So I want to be precise so that we can digest this and it should be attainable to us the next time we want to either passive aggressively or aggressively punish someone for doing something wrong. First and foremost, like I said, if it's about us, there's a rule that we now know so deep. Hurt people hurt people. It's so clear. People who are hurt hurt other people. When people hurt us, we want them to feel the pain. So we hurt them back. And then when we feel even, we can then forgive them and move on. All completely unhealthy, especially when you're dealing with people you love. However, there's an innate unhealthy need for hurt people to hurt people when they grew up in a dysfunctional environment. It's almost like I can't have closure and I can't let go until I hurt the other person back. Now, how unhealthy is that? especially when we're talking about children, parents, um, friends, siblings, and spouses, our significant other. Where's the, where's the healthiness to that? There is none. So therefore, first and foremost, whatever we're doing, is it about me or is it about the other? Yes, do not get me wrong. We have first and foremost... I don't care who we're talking about, how much we love that person. Our first and foremost obligation is to our own safety and healthiness, our own inner child. Hence, nothing, nothing overrides the absolute obligation we have to ourselves to create and protect our boundaries. We don't allow people to disrespect or cross our boundaries. That's not what we're talking about here. That has nothing what to do with punishing the other. 
That has to do with upholding our boundaries. And we uphold it by not engaging and staying on our side of the street and not allowing the other to get onto our side of the street. You don't need to be punitive for that. But when we're talking about the other person, what is it about? It has to be about my caring and loving of the other person. It has to be about what will work for that person. And if it's about the other person, then we will quickly learn that 9.9 out of 10, the carrot will always work better than the stick. And because we have such a need to have control and to hurt people hurt people, we actually start convincing ourselves with a perversive way of thinking, no, 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 but then I'm enabling and I'm inviting for them to hurt me again. Not true. Absolutely not true. We can protect our boundaries and not have to hurt others. And that's why when a child is acting out or anyone, when the person who we love in our life is acting out, they're actually begging for attention. They're begging to be caressed, they're begging to be heard, they're begging to be loved. Hence, by punishing them, we're actually going to end up in a catch-22 where hurt people hurt people is bouncing back and forth. And then we want to know what happened. We used to be so in love. So therefore, we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, what do we really want to accomplish? Is it about the journey in which, like every dog, we have to mark our territory? Or is it about the outcome, which is about the other person? Hence, we think long and hard, especially in today's generation, with what we know about psychology and really the world at a very large, at a very large scale, has turned to the feminine way of understanding and uplifting rather than breaking and molding. And we see clearly that the response is far greater. There are very unique few individuals that are purely evil that need to be dealt with in a total different manner. Most people need to be able to be helped through their script of I'm a bad person, I can't do this, I'm programmed wrong, I don't know how to be good and kind and loving, and to be able to be shown out. Most times in a fight, a person gets themselves into a bind where they wish they can get out of and they don't even know how to get out of, so they keep on digging their hole rather than getting out of the hole. And they need the other person to give an outreached arm and say, both of us, we don't need to do this. We don't need to do this. We love each other. And then I want to take it to one final last point. And that is, I shared with you that within every single curse, every single punishment of the Torah lies the deepest and deepest and deepest of blessings. Now, it's all going to depend upon how the person, the recipient, at what level and paradigm of reality is he or she functioning and behaving? The higher level of reality, of consciousness, 
of connectedness that we function on, the more the verse is shedding any outer lower intellect levels and is now only being embraced and seen and experienced through higher levels. I want to share that it's the same in any form of education. We were created in the image of God, and therefore we have an omnipotence of infinity within us. Hence, whatever we do can always carry the outer shell and the inner fruit. The outer shell is bitter. The inner fruit is always sweet. Hence, even when we're punishing, even when we are educating in a less than sweet way, even when we're giving a time out, I will share with you an experience I had with a principal of one of my children, actually five of my children. And the teachers, it was in preschool, the teachers would send the kid, go to the principal's office. And of course, when a child is sent to the principal's office, a conventional wisdom says that the, the principal's job is to make the child feel so miserable that they won't want to come back. So they'll behave. This principal actually had set up in her corner toys. And when a child was brought to her office, she would not punish the child. She would actually let the child play. She would have the conversation with the child and then let the child play. Why? Because what she was teaching the child was, we had the conversation, you get it. You understand that what you did wasn't right. Now what you really need is healing time. It doesn't need to be suffering, shame, and pain. It's healing time. You need to have a long time. Not because I'm going to punish you and put you in a prison, but you need to have time to just calm down, get out of your limbic system, get back into your executive frontal cortex so that you'll know right from wrong. So go ahead, have time. When you're healthy, you have no reason to want to see the other person suffer because they got you mad. But rather, you'll be able to say, one second, that person isn't a bad person. So if the person is doing something wrong, something is not matching up here. So instead of breaking them, they need to be uplifted. So I will express myself and say that I am really, really displeased with what you're doing. But I know that if you're doing this, what you probably need is alone time to recenter yourself. So why don't you just take your time? Do you know that when I was punished, part of the punishment was, no, you can't read a book. No, 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 no. You can't go ahead and do this. No, you have to write a hundred times. I will not talk out in class because they were so careful to make sure that detention and alone time was painful. Why? 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 Pain begets pain. Shame begets shame. Guilt begets guilt. Love begets love. Respect begets respect. Trust begets trust. Hence, what we really want to do is uplift. So we have the conversation. We state our case. We state our facts. And then we make sure that what seems to be a punishment, you need to have alone time. It's really up to the child. 
Does the child want to lay in bed, be angry, and think how much how much they hate their parent, hate their teacher, hate the punishment? Or, hey, Tati, can I read a book? Sure, sure. Go lay in bed, read a book. Calm down. So counterintuitive to the harsh ways that we were programmed. And yet, so true and so beneficial. A total new understanding of education and what punishment, quote unquote, really is. It's just a shell on top of a fruit and leaving the child with the absolute consciousness that they can choose to go from the peel to the fruit and even enjoy the punishment. God bless you. Have a wonderful Shabbat.